All right, we're going to settle down a little bit. It is so good to see God's people here. I can't believe you guys are here. This is a peak season for like travel and it is nasty hot outside. You guys made it all the way here. Jesus appreciates it, I'm very sure. Uh, so welcome to New Philly. Uh, this is one of our many uh, Hongdae, uh, Hongdae campuses. This is one of our many New Philly campuses. And we're so glad that you get to come here and worship with us. If you're new here, we welcome you. We hope that feels like home, that... You don't get weirded out by people around you, but that this feels like this could be your family as well. So welcome. Um, we do have some special guests, that, which I'm going to call out and embarrass a little bit. My family is here today. My family, yeah. <laughs> uh, really, really happy to have my family. And very fittingly, uh, you know, my brother got, my younger brother got married yesterday. Very fittingly, today we're going to talk about miracles. So... <laughs> You know, now that he's not here, I can kind of, you know, anyway, don't tell him, okay? Uh, anyway, so today is part four of our Mark series, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and it's been such a great journey. I hope it's been really refreshing for you guys to be able to see Jesus once again with fresh eyes. So part one, a few weeks ago, we had Pastor David Ha, and he preached on the gospel of Jesus Christ, how this, the beginning of this gospel is simply for us to understand this man, Jesus Christ, and how he is undoubtedly the Son of God. Part two was, we talked about the invitation, that there was an invitation that Jesus gave to everyone he met, whether it be a disciple, whether it be a tax collector, whether it be um, sick people, whether it be Pharisees, there was always an invitation that Jesus gave that he confronted people with. And then part three, which was last week, we talked about the kingdom. This is the kingdom that he was inviting them into. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's not the kingdoms of this world. It's a kingdom that is under the rulership and lordship of Jesus, who is the seed, who is the word, who is buried in the ground, that through his death, the sons and the daughters of God will become that 30, 60, 100-fold harvest that comes from that one seed. And so that we would become, from that mustard seed, we become that great tree. So today, we're going to be talking about miracles. Now, this is something... Honestly, if I were super honest, like I wasn't really eager to preach about this just because it's not like your cup of tea. It's not really easy. It's like something prickly that you don't know really how to approach. And when it comes to Jesus, there's so many different facets that he was very unashamed of. And this was one of them. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I get a little bit embarrassed about this facet of Jesus. It's like you want Jesus to behave like, hey, be on your best behavior like people are watching, don't do anything weird, just be as predictable, as safe, as almost like manageable as possible. That's the kind of Jesus that like deep inside we kind of want. We don't like this Jesus that comes in and somehow he thinks he's Lord. Somehow he thinks he's king and he does whatever he wants. And he bends, you know, even laws of nature. And he heals people and he brings people back from the dead and he seems to do whatever he wants he seems to be under the impression that he's lord and something about us in our rebellious nature doesn't like that we like him to be a little bit more like tame more like okay i can introduce you to my friends and my family like i don't want you to be kind of you know unpredictable i just want you to be very predictable very tame very manageable and this is something that Jesus was very unapologetic about. This is something that he didn't seem to, like, he didn't seem, like, in Korean, it's like a little bit like, like, 
It wasn't like, ah, I hope you guys feel okay about this. I'm going to do a little bit unorthodox here. He never seemed to give that disclaimer. He just seemed to you know, rise up, get healed. You know, you're forgiven and, you know, rise up from the dead. And he seemed to just, this was part of his character. This was part of his nature. You couldn't really divorce Jesus from his miraculous supernatural nature. It was one and the same. And so this is something that no matter how much we kind of want to dodge around this issue or how much we want to sidestep this, you cannot go through the book of Mark without talking about the miracles. You just cannot. You cannot bypass such a big part of his ministry and who he is. So what we're going to do today is actually we're going to go through some scripture rather quickly, but today we're going to have a more extended time to actually pray today, if you guys are okay with that. It's a little bit different from what we normally do. Um, but so today we're going to talk about different ways in which he demonstrated his power, and he demonstrated in four different aspects. The first one is he had power over nature. And this is all within like a chapter, a chapter and a half, where we see Jesus like bam, 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 back to back, doing all these miraculous signs and wonders. So the first one is he, uh, he shows his power over nature. So we start in Mark 4, the very end of it. It says, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with, the, uh, with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? These are seasoned fishermen. So people who have been doing this for a long time, people that have seen their fair share of storms, all of a sudden they're fearing for their lives. So it's not like a little a little wave here, a little wind here. No, it's like, we are going to die. Like, this is it. This is it. I feel like I'm not going to make it out of this storm. And so these are seasoned, experienced fishermen who are looking all around them, and it doesn't look good for them. It doesn't look good even for someone who knows how to navigate these seas. And like in the midst of the storm, like, can you imagine a little fisher boat, like, like and you see like waves towering over it, and you feel so human, and so small, and so at the mercy of the elements all around you. It's this kind of situation where you realize that you are not God, right? You realize that there's nothing in your power that can save you in this moment. And then in this context, Jesus, he awoke, and he had the nerve to rebuke the wind and say to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind seized and there was great calm. Now, common knowledge for people who um, have been around water for a long time, especially for fishermen, is that even if you were to somehow manage to calm down the wave, I mean, the, the wind, you cannot calm down the waves. It will go on for hours and hours, if not days, until finally calms down, even if the wind were to stop right away. So this is something that should freak people out. People who are in the boat who are about to die, all of a sudden, they see this man get up from the stern, who was having a really good nap, apparently, and he just says, peace, be still, and the wind ceases, and the waves calm down. This is, like, not your ordinary, you know, not your ordinary guy who's on your boat, and all of a sudden, you realize that, oh my gosh, like, we are in the presence of something completely different, something of a completely different order. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
This is a very cutting but also very gracious question that he asked them. I don't know if you guys have heard this in, in your lives, but I definitely have had my fair share where Jesus is like, have you forgotten who I am? Like, didn't you remember the, the breakthrough from last week? Like, already you're freaking out about this one thing. Like, last week, like, there was a breakthrough. In your family, there was a breakthrough. In your workplace, there was a breakthrough. Have you still no faith? Have you forgotten who I am? Every time that I am, I find myself falling into anxiety, uncertainty, like, oh, my gosh, this is a storm that nobody is going to be able to make out of. Like, this is no, there's no way that I'm going to make out of, uh, make my way out of this in one piece. Jesus asked me once again, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Don't you know that I'm with you? Do you know that there's no way you're going to perish as long as I'm with you? Have you still no faith? In the case of the, the disciples, this was after seeing healings. This is after seeing demons confessing he is Lord. After hearing the voice of heaven, you know, at his baptism. This is after hearing his teachings and they themselves were sent out to heal. After this, even then, they find themselves in the grip of anxiety and uncertainty. And, oh my gosh, we're going to perish. This is the end. And once they saw the way that Jesus, in such a gangster you know, a really gangster kind of way. is like, peace, beast. I don't know if I would ever have the nerve to say anything like that. But the wind and the waves were at his beck and call. They obeyed. They bowed down before his power. And they just stopped. He said, be still. Well, be still. You know, and they just were still. And in the midst of that, when the disciples were witnessing this firsthand, they were filled with great fear, very understandably. And said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the right response. When Jesus does something to blow your mind, you should react like this. This is very human of us. It makes sense for us to realize that, oh my gosh, you don't mess around with this guy. Like this is, this is a big deal. This is not just a whatever kind of guy that I'm dealing with. This is the real deal. Even the seas, even the wind obey him. This was his first, you know, of many, you know, demonstrations just within this, this chapter and a half. Next, he shows us the, pow- the power that he had over demons. They came to the other side immediately, right? They finally came to the other side after all the storm. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And day and night, night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when Jesus, when he saw Jesus from far away, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. This is the third time already, only in like five chapters, that we see the demons proclaiming his lordship. Already, within just a really short span of time, this is the third time. We already talked about the past two times, right? Demons are the first ones to say, you are the Lord. In the midst of everybody saying like, who in the world is this? You know, all the disciples are like, huh, you're an interesting rabbi. (laughs) a very strange, you know, way of doing ministry. In the midst of all this, the demons are the first ones to say, 
you're not just a rabbi. You're not just a teacher. You're not just an ordinary man. You are Jesus, the son of God, son of the most high. And then they say, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. This is demons that were tormenting a man for years. Now they are being tormented by this man, Jesus Christ. This is really, it's supposed to like blow your mind. This is somebody who's been tormented for years, not been able to be around family, not been able to hold a normal conversation, not been able to really live a functional life. He's been so tormented by demons that he's not able to even be bound by shackles, not even being, being able to be restrained. And as soon as this man sees Jesus, the demons within him, they cannot, they cannot help but cry out. This is Jesus, the son of the most high God. Do not torment me. Whatever power is in you is greater than the power that is within us to torment this man. Do not torment us. So these demons are begging for mercy. So Jesus is not just someone who, you know, is able to command the winds and the waves, but even the demons bow down, bow down before him. And this is because he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is actually a military term. Legion is a military term, and it comes from you know, the ancient Roman army, the military term used to define a unit of three thousand to six thousand soldiers so we're talking about a big number right this is not just like your normal ordinary like you know one little unclean spirit now this is a legion of evil spirits that are bowing down at the name of jesus so if you can imagine being like eyewitnesses to this and you'd be like everything we've tried to do with this man to restrain him even like steel like chains cannot hold him down and this man jesus walks up to him and all of a sudden the demons in him are bowing down and begging for mercy like who in the world is this guy and so how the story ends is a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside and they begged him. So these, these demons are begging for their life and they're saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. They're asking Jesus for permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2,000, 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of sangapsai, right? It's a lot it's a lot, like, it's like a herd of pigs, and you see them all, you know, rush. That's a lot. Oh, that's such a waste. Anyway, uh, rushing down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen, so the people who are taking care of these pigs, right, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion. He's now sitting there clothed and in his right man, mind, and they were afraid, and rightly so. Again, they know that they're dealing with something out of the ordinary. Now, if this wasn't enough, immediately after that, we see Jesus' power over sickness. This is like back to back, power over sickness. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue. So this is someone with power, someone with influence, with sway, with prestige among men. And Jairus was his name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. So the powerful in the land are 
bowing at his feet. And this is what he told him. He implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Let's pause here for a second, especially now that, you know, my dad is here and, you know, my, my older brother is also here and he also has daughters. Like, this is the heart of, of a father who's grief-stricken. This is the heart of someone who will do whatever it takes to save his daughter. Like, this is not just someone who will, like, oh, let me try this attempt or this, this thing here. This is someone who is not caring about the prestige and, like, the respect and his poise and his dignity. He is kneeling down before Jesus, and he says, like, if there's any way that you could save my daughter, like, I'll do anything. I'll humiliate myself. I'll bow down before you if this is what it takes to save my daughter. This is someone who will go to great lengths to see a miracle happen in his life. I can't really imagine what it must feel like to be a parent and feel so helpless, knowing that you've tried everything, but in the end, if it's not God who moves in their lives, there's no hope. I cannot even imagine being in that place where you want to, you'd rather give up your own life in order to, to save the, the, the life of your daughter. And so in the midst of, as this was happening, as the story was unfolding, there's something that intercepts Jesus, right? A great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years is a long, long, long time who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So this is 12 years of wrestling with, okay, I'm going to hope for, for, for a cure. I'm going to hope for healing. And then you feel like you're disappointed. And then you feel like you can hope again. And then you go back to disappointment. You're swinging back and forth between hope and disappointment, hope and disillusionment. You're spending all of your money, all of your savings, everything that you have, You've spent it. And not only that, it hasn't just helped you minimally. It has, it has actually damaged your body in the process. It has actually hurt you in the process. Now, if this is a, a sickness that involves a distru- the discharge of blood, according to Levitical law, it's also a, a sickness that made you unclean and unfit to go into the temple. This means that this was a sickness that kept her from God's manifest presence for 12 years. Again, like I've never been in that kind of agony for more than like five minutes, I feel like. You know, like five minutes is all I can bear. I cannot imagine going through my life for 12 years praying over and over again, trying everything in my power to find my healing, doing everything I can, spending all of my money, doing all of my research, trying to find a way around this, and yet seeing no fruit. And so a woman that is in that kind of position, when she heard the reports about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, this is very unorthodox, what she's doing right now. Again, according to Levitical law, if you were in contact with anything that was unclean, that uncleanliness transferred over to you. So in essence, she, was, she could have potentially made Jesus unclean. And this is kind of the whole mindset of the law keepers. This is the whole mindset of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It's like you need to avoid 
sin. You need to avoid uncleanliness and unclean people so that you can remain pure. But Jesus himself was operating under a completely different paradigm. He was like, I am light, and if that is darkness, light will always overcome darkness. Light will always affect darkness. And so it's not that her impurity came on Jesus, it's that his purity came upon this woman. And what happened in the midst of all this? It was in the midst of the chaos of, like, again, it's like line number two, line number nine and during rush hour. It's like people are pressed against you, and you don't know where, like, how to even breathe. You're like, your face is, like, up against someone's back, like, that's sweaty and, like, really nasty. Um, so in the middle of this kind of, this kind of crowd where you're being swept by the crowd, like, she, like, somehow finds a way to just, just touch the hem of his garment. And what happened following that is immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, I don't know how he did this, but he felt just power leave him. He immediately turned around the crowd and said, who touched my garments? You realize that this is a really, really ridiculous question. It's like saying in, in line number two, line number nine, like who touched me? You know, like everybody's touching you, right? So, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, she knew that something supernatural had just happened. She came in fear and trembling, and she fessed up, right? She fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is Jesus, like, almost like by accident, <laughs> almost by, he did, wasn't even like looking for this woman and saying any particular words to her. It's almost like by accident. There was so much power in him that even just a touch, somebody touching him would be able to heal someone of a disease of 12 years. Now, there's something very particular about this, this um, story, though, that, that is worth mentioning, is that there are many people who are touching Jesus in the same way, but they didn't have that same faith. In her mind, she was like, if I touch him, just one touch is going to be enough. One touch is going to be enough to heal me. One touch from Jesus, this man who is God, is enough to heal me. And as if this wasn't enough, this wasn't overwhelming enough for people around him, he then demonstrates his power over death. If you guys have forgotten already, we're in the middle of a different story when this other story interjected, right? He shows his power over even death. He, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, so Jairus' house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Jesus, uh, Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This sounds really insensitive, right? Really insensitive, very unorthodox in the midst of people who are grieving. And he said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was. So this is a point where all hope is lost. This is a point where you feel like it's the point of no return. Like it's too late. There was a window of opportunity for healing, and it just closed, and it is done. All the damage is irreversible. 
all hope is lost. It's just done. In the midst of that, Jesus decides to step into the situation. He takes her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. She was just as old as the other woman's sickness was. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, this is like back to back. He displays his power over nature, where the seas, the waves, the wind, they are at his beck and call. And one word from him, he just says, be still. He doesn't do like a whole ceremony or a ritual. All he does is just he opens his mouth and he says, be still. And that's all it takes for the winds and the wave to obey. He shows his power over demons where he just shows up. And then demons are already bowing at his feet. They're confessing that he's Jesus, the son of the most high. And they're begging for their lives. We see his power over sickness where just one touch, one touch of faith is all it takes for this healing to come. And then we see his power over death. How even death is within his influence, his power, even death bends at his name. Now, we could end here on a really high note and sing kumbaya and like, yeah, yeah, high five. Jesus is awesome. But before I close, there's a word of warning that comes immediately after these, all these miracles. And it's a word of warning that talks about over-familiarity offense and unbelief and this happens immediately after this miracle happened i don't think it's a coincidence that it happens right after it's regarding what happens when we become over familiar with jesus we feel like we have a handle on him we feel like we've seen all there is to know like we've seen everything we know everything we know exactly how he's going to operate we know exactly what he's going to do what he's going to say there's over familiarity there's offense and there's unbelief so what happens in mark chapter 6 is it says, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him they thought they had figured him out and he sends them a curveball and in their minds they cannot escape that preconceived notion of who he is and jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. It's possible to have Jesus in your midst, see him do all these crazy, amazing things, and still not believe because you feel like he doesn't fit into your mold. He doesn't fit into what you thought Jesus was. So this is a very simple, very straightforward question I want us all to ask ourselves today. Is the God you worship also the God of miracles? It's a very uncomfortable question because you have to begin to think outside of what's predictable. 
outside of what is to be expected given your efforts, given your striving, given your works, is a God that you worship, the God of miracles. Now, I'm not just saying this question just to ask the obvious. I'm asking this question because perhaps we can mentally acknowledge that Jesus did these things, that he's kind of disruptive when he chooses to be. There's things that maybe we're not comfortable with. It's possible to mentally acknowledge these things but actually not believe it. But if we don't believe in a miracle-working Jesus, the Jesus that is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then we're not believing the Jesus of the Bible. You cannot dodge the miracles. You cannot dodge it. That's part of who he is. If we say we love Jesus, we have to love all of him, not just the parts that we're comfortable with, not just the parts that fit into our theology, not just the parts that are, seem convenient at the time. We've got to embrace all of Jesus we cannot settle for a tamer, more controlled, more manageable kind of Jesus because it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And until our thoughts and our expectations align with expectations of the Bible, then we're not completely conformed in our minds and in our hearts to his word. We can live as Christians, we can do church as Christians, and yet not know the true God of the Bible. He's very unapologetic about his signs, his wonders, and his miracles. That's part of who he is. And I say this to you because for many years as a Christian, this is something that I would rather not talk about. I think in, for, the, for the sake of being seen as more cautious, um, which I think you need to be, you need to be discerning, you need to weigh things against Scripture. But if Scripture itself is telling you that this is a God that knows no limits, this is a God of miracles, this is a God who works wonders, not just internally, not just for salvation, but sickness, death, nature, demons, everything bows at the name of Jesus. If this is the kind of God that the Bible talks about, then there's something wrong about my understanding of Jesus. Something's incomplete. And I lived many years of my life with a very incomplete understanding of who Jesus was. I was very uncomfortable, to be honest. I didn't like being seen as, like, charismatic or, like, I don't want to be associated with all y'all, like, those kind of weird people, like, a little bit unhinged and, like, a little in control. And, you know, I didn't want to be associated with them. I want to be a little bit more respectable, you know, <laughs> a little bit more, like, you know, like, I don't know, like, more put together. And I remember there was this moment of, like, crisis within me when God began to answer in my life in very unconventional ways, and I had no box to put that in. I was like, ah, what do I do with this? This happened in my life. Where can we tuck it away in a very neat kind of place for my theology to remain intact? I remember feeling that tension. I remember feeling like this, the sense of like, oh my gosh, maybe I don't know Jesus as well as I thought I did. Maybe the God that I was worshiping until now is God, but he's not all of God. I felt almost like a little betrayed. Like, you're not allowed to do that, you know? <laughs> like, you're supposed to play along to my rules. You're supposed to fit into my mold. You're supposed to, you know, march to the beat of my drum, you know? You're not supposed to do your own thing and be God, actually, you know? And there's a sense of, like, almost like betrayal. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I, I don't, I, you're disrupting my life right now. <laughs> you're not allowed to do that. And I remember feeling that tension. I remember this, there was this one um, service that I went to. 
um, it was like years back, I, I think it's almost been 10 years, where I was feeling that tension. I was feeling like, I don't know what to do with this. What am I, wh- what am I supposed to believe in now? And I remember God very sovereignly, very graciously, he spoke to me that day. Like, I, I didn't hear him audibly, but I just felt like a very strong impression that God was speaking to me. And all he said was, do not limit my power. That's all he said. And after that, I was like, like I broke down. And, you know, like all the kind of walls that I put up, all the like defense mechanisms, everything that I was trying to use to contain him, all that came crashing down when he said, in such kindness and such compassion, he said, don't limit my power. Like, you're limiting my power right now. You're not aware of how I want to move in your life. Don't limit what I'm able to do. If you let me do what I want to do in your life, you're going to see amazing things. That's what I felt. I felt like the heart of the father. The heart of a father saying, like, don't, don't hold, like, don't restrain my hand. I'm trying to bless you here. I'm trying to bless you here. And I think, you know, as my journey went on, I began to believe in the supernatural. I began to see that, man, this God doesn't play by the rules. It's a much better God to worship, actually. He's much less just human and much more human and God. And as I continue to go on this journey, there, there's like a span, I would say, of like, a, like maybe three, four years where I was like, yeah, our God can do everything. And then there came a point where I actually became embarrassed of the Holy Spirit. And this is how God confronted me. This was during the years that I went to seminary. And the particular seminary that I went to wasn't very open to the supernatural works of the Holy Spirit. And um, it was a really great seminary in many other ways. But this is one area where they're like, eh, we don't really talk about that. Well, you know, let's talk about what we're sure about. But all this other stuff, like, eh, if it happens, great. But this is not, like, the stuff you, know, you seek for and you don't really, you know. So, like, if anything supernatural happened, like, you don't really talk about it. You say, like, you know, you try to explain it away or, I don't know. Like, you just try to de-charismatic it, right? Like, trying to make it a little bit more polished and presentable so people don't think you're crazy and you actually believe that Jesus does, you know, signs you know? And I remember, like, being in the midst of, uh, like, seminary and surrounded by people who believe a certain thing about Jesus. And I remember feeling like, okay, I cannot believe in Jesus in the way that I do here. And I would speak differently. I would do things differently. I would, you know, like, try to look a certain way. And I remember during a random quiet time, like, I was just doing quiet time and I was just worshiping. And then the Holy Spirit interrupts my quiet time. And all he says is, like, are you ashamed of me? And I was like, oh. You know what I mean? Like you realize that you've become ashamed of the Holy Spirit. Like in very subtle ways, you try to like polish him up so that your friends are, you know, are okay to meet with him, you know? Like you don't, you don't want him to like really be disruptive. You want him to play along with you. You don't want him, you don't want to play along with him. You know, you want him to play by your rules and look the way that you want him to look. And, the Holy Spirit just confronted me like that. It was really painful to be confronted by that question, but I think it was also very telling of where my heart was at. I had become very subconsciously very ashamed of the Holy Spirit. Like I didn't want what is true about him to be true. Like I would rather just, you know, warp truth, warp the word in order for it to fit into my circumstances. Now, this is what A.W. Tozer says. He may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. 
We have imitated the world. We have sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord, and produced a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. This means that we can do church for years and not believe in the Holy Spirit. We can manage to pull together like a pretty decent service, you know, got a good band, we got a, you know, like relatively good speaker, we, you know, we can make it work, but God would not be in our midst. We're not, we're not going to see the real deal. We're not going to see the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We're just going to have a cheap and synthetic substitute. Now, this is very dangerous territory for us because it needs to make us open to uncertainty. And the first question that comes to everybody's mind is, what if he doesn't answer? Right? <laughs> You're like, you made me believe. You better, you better show up, you know? Like, there's this part in this of like, okay, okay, we're going to put myself out there. You better answer. You know, you better answer. And God in his grace, he does, right? But there's this fear in us. Like, what if I'm setting myself up for disappointment? Right? What if I actually choose to believe the word and you fail me, like you don't answer. Now, there's no easy answer to this. There's no easy answer to this. There's, this is part of the realm, I would say, of mystery, where God chooses to do what he chooses to do. He is sovereign. He doesn't need our permission. He doesn't need our, like, like our okay, you're, like, you're good to do this, you're not okay to do this. He chooses to do what he chooses to do. He's sovereign. He is God, and we are not, right? So I don't, I don't have any answers for you there. But what I do know is that when he does not answer, it's not in vain. It's not a missed opportunity. I don't know why he doesn't answer the way that we think he will. Maybe it's because he's God, right? But one thing I do know is that through this opportunity, we can examine our hearts. We can examine our motives. Whether we are manipulating the Holy Spirit or whether we're submitting to him. It's an opportunity to allow God to humble us. In the book, The Sensitivity of the Holy Spirit, written by R.T. Kendall, he says, The twin sins of self-righteousness and self-pity so readily lift their ugly heads in us. For example, it is a rare person who can be an intercessor in prayer and not boast about it. It is a rare person who can pray for a leader and then refrain from giving advice. It is a rare person who can... Be greatly used of God today and tomorrow. Be quietly willing to watch God use another. It is a rare person who can see God answer prayer on one item and not question because he doesn't answer other prayers. It is a rare person who can enjoy sweet intimacy with Christ today and not feel sad when he doesn't manifest his presence tomorrow. Few of us can handle how much, much success especially in the area of knowing God. God is the only one who can deal with us when we are like that. Sometimes the only way he can get our attention is by being ruthlessly silent. And this is what he says. Don't fear his silence. Use it to examine your heart and motives. Listen expectantly for the silence to be broken by the glory of his manifest presence once again in your life. Don't fear a silence. Don't fear the unanswered prayers. Don't fear every time you put yourself out there and you choose to believe and you choose to hope. 
Don't fear that. God will use it. But in the meantime, use that as an opportunity to just examine your heart, and it won't go to waste. Now, this is a question that I asked myself about 10 years ago when I was in this tension. And it was a very honest question. What if I'm scared? Like up until now, Jesus was very manageable. But once you step into this territory of allowing him to be supernatural God, allowing him to be a miracle-working God, you become a little bit scared because you don't know what you're going to get. And it is then that we have to remember that he's not just powerful, but he's also good. C.S. Lewis, when he talks about Aslan, he's like the, the, the metaphor for God. There's a, there's a scene where the children who are a little bit nervous about meeting Aslan, they, they are talking with Mr. Beaver, and this is what it says. Aslan is a lion, a great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not safe. He's not predictable. He's not manageable, but he is good. And that is an area in our lives where we have to trust him. You don't know what you're going to get, but whatever you do get is going to be good. He cannot go against his nature. He cannot go against who he is. He is a God who's bent on blessing you. He's bent on being good to you in your life. So that is the reassurance for all of us. This is an area where it's going to challenge many of us to let go of control. I realized for me and 10 years ago, the root issue for me was control. I cannot control this situation. I cannot control this God. Like he actually wants to control me. It's the other way around. And I was very uncomfortable with it, and I realized that I did have a control issue there. So this is going to challenge us in very many different ways. And it's going to have us confront our fears, fears of disappointment, fears of disillusionment, fears of what if he doesn't move in my life, or what if he does? What if he does? What if he does all these crazy things that I've been asking for in my life? What am I going to do then, you know? Like, you're scared if he doesn't, and you're scared if he does. Like, it's a lose-lose situation, so might as well just let him, right? Uh, so what I wanted us to close with today was just a time for prayer. We haven't done this in a long time, but I felt that it was very fitting for us to just take a moment to pray. So if we could have the praise team come up. They're just going to lead us in worship. And something we haven't done in a long time is actually open up the altar, altar space, for us to receive prayer. Now, I don't want you to feel like very self-conscious or whatever. But there might be different areas in your life that you're starting to realize that these problems are unsolvable unless God moves in miraculous ways. I don't know what it looks like. It could be within your family. It could be within you're praying for someone's salvation. It could be you're, you're praying for a certain sickness. It could be that in your workplace, you know, certain things have come up where you know that no matter how much you try, you're not going to fix it, and you need to invite God to move in supernatural ways. It could be about future decisions that you're praying about where, man, God, I, I need supernatural confirmation, or I need, I need you to remind me that you're in control when everything else seems to be out of control. It could be like a, a myriad of situations that we're facing, 
but I wanted to open up space for us to pray about it. So I want to have everybody just close your eyes. <laughs> 